Hello, and welcome on in for another episode of Dogs in Autumn, the history of American football. Today I'm going to do a quick comparison between football and soccer, how they work mechanically, what some of the evolved philosophies for playing them are, as well as a little of the business side of things. I think this will be useful for fans who may have familiarity with one coming to understand the other. I'm happy to be here, and of course very happy to have you here as well. At first blush, there doesn't seem to be a lot to compare here. On the one hand, you have American football, which is a plotting, deliberate game of starts and stops and infinite substitutions, where a pointed, oblong leather ball with exaggerated stitching is carried by heavily armored players and there's very little kicking whatsoever. And then you have soccer, or everyone else's football, which is a dynamic game where play seldom stops, substitutions are extremely limited, and the ball cannot be advanced by carrying at all. Differences, of course, carry on deeper than that, but first, let's take a step back and clarify some things for ourselves. Why does play stop in American football? Isn't that utterly unlike any other member of the football family? What's going on there? Well, first of all, it isn't completely unique. I would argue the uncontested possession in rugby league is relatively similar, though the pace is obviously much faster. But as to why play stops so much in football, the answer is almost boring. It was an ideological choice more than a competitive one, which is true of most choices that structure play in any sport. For American football, the ideological choice was to attempt to decrease the role of luck in how the game would be decided, and we've discussed that before. The result, however, is interesting. The best way to describe the game for fans of soccer would be this. Imagine everything in American football is a set piece. This will help make the game more intuitive, and it's also, for all intents and purposes, literally true. A play begins with a set formation that must in fact be frozen. One player is allowed to be in motion, but the rest of the formation must be frozen for at least a beat before the ball can be put in play. The play stops once the ball carrier has been brought to ground by the defense, and it must then it must be put in play again from another set formation. In the interval between these plays, the offense has a fixed amount of time to do within reason whatever they want. They can sub out every player on the field if they want to. The defense can do whatever they like with this time as well, with the caveat being that the offense is the one in control of the pace, so it behooves the defense to stay on their toes before they get caught off guard. This gave rise to another distinguishing feature of American football, coach participation. In soccer, and indeed in all other members of the football family, the participation of the coaching staff is pretty strictly limited. This was technically the case in football until much later than most fans probably realize. Coaches sending in play calls was only legalized in the 60s, but the rule change followed the fact that breaking the rule had become more common than abiding by it and had been for decades. And it does violate much of the spirit of the ideological choices that shaped the sport in its early days, but I would argue that these pieces fit together quite well. Think again about set pieces. If you've ever played soccer, you know that set pieces are wonderful precisely because they're the one tactical area that can be worked out beforehand. If you did a good job drilling your set piece and you execute it better than your opponent defends it, the chance for a goal is extremely high. Therefore, player participation and timing is predetermined and thoroughly drilled, and great set pieces are carefully designed by more advanced players and, of course, their coaches. And now again, Apply that same logic, but to every single play in American football, because it's exactly the same. Every time the ball is snapped, you're witnessing a coordinated contest between tacticians, executed by athletes who function in part as chess pieces. Soccer is celebrated for the beauty it creates in improvisation. 
The athletes have a formation, of course. They have their preferred method of advancing the ball through the phases and for defending against such advances, but the real genius of it is made in the moment by the athletes themselves. A kind of athletic genius exists in football too, as it does in any sport, but the creativity and beauty of American football lives more in the well-designed and well-executed play. And the game has evolved over time to feature this so-called chess match more and more. In the early days, playbooks were relatively thin, and their success was far more about precise execution and timing over and over again. Games tended to be low-scoring, and with a heavy running game operated in one of two styles, the power run or the option. While these two were never actually mutually exclusive and were in fact combined quite a bit, the power run is an orientation, I guess you could call it, an exercise in strength and maximizing leverage, whereas the option is more of an exercise in timing and creating leverage. The forward pass was something to be suspicious of for the most part at the time. As Ohio State coach Woody Hayes used to say, when you throw the ball, three things can happen and two of them are bad. But as time passed and the game evolved, offenses grew more complex. And of course, defenses grew more complex to match. And as the game got more complex, the role of the coaches in the game necessarily increased. The same trend toward greater complexity has unfolded in global soccer, though at a different pace and for different reasons. The early sport was dominated by physical attacking offenses that looked to create scoring opportunities above all else. By the 1920s and 30s, though, a more reactive, defensive type of ball based on an early version of the 3-5-2 formation began to predominate. Still incredibly physical, but with a better conception of space and the delicate balance between possession and position. In the 1970s and 80s, when modern passing offenses were finally beginning to develop in American football, soccer, at least European soccer, underwent a shift toward a more flexible and fluid style of play that leaned heavily on the adaptability of each player on a team, a style called total football and pioneered by the Dutch club Ajax. While the prevalence of total football tactics in the soccer of the 70s and 80s was transforming the sport by leading clubs to build bespoke systems around individual strengths of all players, a young Bill Walsh was an assistant coach with the NFL Cincinnati Bengals and building a specialized system around the limitations of one player in particular, his quarterback, Virgil Carter. Carter was a smart player. He knew ball. He had pinpoint accuracy, which wasn't always a given in the football of the 1970s, even in the NFL. He was also athletic and adept at extending plays when the blocking broke down around him. But he had a problem. Virgil Carter had a weak arm. Now, Bill Walsh was working in Cincinnati, but his roots were on the West Coast. His first professional coaching job was under the Raiders' Al Davis, where he learned the advanced vertical passing game favored by Sid Gilman and most of the teams of the AFL. This meant deep passes, rainbows to the end zone, the kind of offense that made the AFL exciting enough to force the merger with the NFL. Virgil Carter couldn't do that. So Bill Walsh rotated the vertical passing game 90 degrees. He created an offense that used short to medium passes from sideline to sideline to stretch the field horizontally and stress the defense. It was a complex blend of routes and timing that grew to make full use of a wider range of athletic ability. If a team was smart and committed to it, you could build a contender even if Joe Namath wasn't your quarterback. This is the West Coast offense and it came to dominate football at the pro level for a generation. In soccer, 
Tikitaka had a strong run through the 2010s, with a focus on quick precision passing and maintaining a dizzying possession for long durations of time, only to bury one from range at just the exact moment a window opens. Around the same time, the West Coast offense was fused with a heavy dose of the air raid offense from the high school and college ranks and made the NFL an even more passing-oriented league. These days, though, both sports are arguably in a post-systems phase, at least at the highest level of competition. The evolution of tactics and strategy in any serious sport is driven by the necessity of winning plus the opportunities that arise on their own over time. One day I'll be able to go into this more, but something for all of us to get our heads around is that sports at the level we're accustomed to today is actually pretty new in the history of the human experience. There have been periods of intense, highly organized sports in the past, and we've discussed some of them, but never at the scale of the entire world and with the full force of modern economies behind them. Athletes today grow ever more competent with better nutrition and training from younger ages. Coaching has grown from a combination of babysitting and pseudoscience into a fully or mostly rationalized discipline, equipped with enormous staffs and budgets in the hundreds of millions. Today, in both American football and international soccer, teams at the highest levels are, and should be, expected to have an enormous repertoire at the ready for when the need arises, and they should always expect the need to arise at any time, because ultimately, the athletes on the other side are just as professional as they are. So there's the tactical history of these two football codes. Let's talk about the business. We've touched on the business side of both here and there, but I'd like to get it all out there. The biggest difference is that international soccer is, well, international, truly and completely international. If you're a truck driver or lorry driver in Birmingham and you play amateur ball for a local football club on the weekends, you are in a very meaningful sense tied to the same overall system as Neymar is. Very, very different levels of competition, but there's a real pipeline there. If you got in an accident with radioactive waste and were transformed into a mutant midfielder, there's a path that puts you on a roster with any top flight league anywhere in the world. Not so with American football. I mean, talent will be found, but an athlete's relationship to football is virtually always linear. It starts young, though not usually as young as it did for me anymore. And from a young age, you learn fundamentals, either with a youth league squad or your middle school team, which for the most part may as well exist on different planets, even if they frequently share facilities. From there, you'll advance to high school football, if you're very good, very eager, or have rich parents, you'll also start doing camps along about this time, which are both opportunities for developing skills in an intensive, immersive environment and a chance to network and be seen by scouts and coaches from the college level. Increasingly, young players opt to play 7-on-7 seven seven in the offseason, which is a modified version of football designed to reduce contact and develop skill position, read ball handling, players. This is sort of like the academy system deployed in soccer, but outside some of the camps, none of these things are associated with a higher level of football. High school teams are operated by their school boards and regulated by organizations at the state level. They do this with their own budgets and for their own gratification, and that they happen to develop players for more advanced levels of football is just a side effect. The same is true of college football, though the level of play in major college football is professional in every sense but the most literal. If I were trying to compare these two sports at this point, I would say that major college football can be thought of as something approximating the championship to the NFL's Premier League, with the strong caveat that there is no planet where a college team would ever beat an NFL team. 
Essentially, the gap between these two, quote, divisions of American football is quite a bit wider than the gap between the championship and the Premier League. But these are the two highest tiers of the American sport. But wait, what about the USFL and the XFL? Didn't I do a whole episode on them? Yes, I did. And I said what I said. For most fans of American football, this shouldn't be especially controversial, but I know some of you are from elsewhere, so I'm going to say it anyway. The top of college football is better than the XFL or the USFL. I don't know how much because they'll never meet on the field, and maybe it all won't always be that way. But for now, it is. So back to our hypothetical lorry driver from Birmingham. It's a long, winding route, but he's in the same world as virtually any soccer player anywhere in the world. The equivalent truck driver from Birmingham, Alabama, doesn't have that connection or even the sense of it. Maybe he was solid in high school but didn't get any scholarship-level college offers, so he did what most of us do and moved on, never to play the game again. Football is a young man's game, etc., etc. Or maybe not. Maybe he plays semi-pro, which usually just means amateur, actually, for a team from Bessemer or Pell City or somewhere like that. It's possible. He'll do that till he can't or doesn't want to anymore. And then that'll be it for him. More likely, the team will cease operations before it even goes that far. There's just not much demand for football outside the traditional high school, college, NFL pipeline. You see, as we discussed way back in our Stone Age football episode, every code of football anywhere in the world has its roots in schools, but in America, football still belongs to the schools. For the majority of people who've ever played the game, professionals aren't just a minority. They're an exception. The 1% of the 1%. For the rest of us, it's just over after school. As a result, there's no real pyramid in the way people mean when they're talking about sports outside the United States. We've developed our own method for keeping competitive balance, though I would argue, and will another day, that promotion and relegation doesn't actually do a great job of that at all, and also, it isn't really the point of it. Promotion and relegation is just fun. It adds intrigue that can't be replicated otherwise, and that makes every single game worth watching because they all have stakes. But as we've learned, and learned increasingly over the last 30 years since the Premier League broke away from the old league system, the actual key to competitive balance is financial balance. I would insert a blaring Soviet anthem here, but I'm too lazy. However, it is true. That's the NFL system. Salary caps, the NFL draft, and most importantly, profit sharing. An even more extreme version of this was actually adopted by MLS, which flat out operates as a single entity, with club quote-unquote owners actually being shareholders in MLS itself, with a license to operate a soccer club. The case could be made easily that the extremity of the MLS system and the competitive balance it creates actually holds MLS back, but that's also for another podcast. In the meantime, there'll be a part two for this episode soon. I'm going to go deeper into a working comparison between the NFL and the Premier League, just so we can get a sense of how they compare on a day-to-day, season-to-season level. But that'll be in a few weeks. I've started to get way too bogged down in these bonus episodes, so we're going to go back into the chronology for a while. I hope you'll join me. If you're feeling mega dope and super kind, leave a rating or review. If you want to reach out, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at dogsandautumn, one word, or email me at dogsandautumn at gmail.com. I've also started a Substack just for fun. You can sign up and get two or three written pieces a week, which is where some of the more niche or theoretical topics that come up in research are going to start to go. Nothing is behind a paywall yet and probably won't be for a while, so, you know, free real estate. Till next time, take care.